This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's the worst mass killing in Toronto's history. And it used the means of terrorism, whether or not it was motivated by terrorist ideology. It's the kind of attack where the vehicle is the weapon of choice. We've seen attacks like this in Nice, in Berlin, in Barcelona, and other cities. The driver of the van that mowed down pedestrians indiscriminately, it seemed, on Young Street yesterday is identified as 25-year-old Alec Manassian. He appeared in court this morning and was charged with 10 counts of murder and 13 counts of attempted murder. We don't yet know why. The police officer who arrested him without firing a shot is Constable Ken Lamb, a traffic enforcement officer with about 12 years of experience who works out of 32 Division. He is being hailed as a hero. So are some bystanders who put themselves in harm's way to stop the van driver from getting away and to try to help the injured. The event is a shock to all of us. The sight of bodies covered with orange tarps on Young Street is not something we will soon forget. We are devoting the entire program to these events to understand what we can learn from them, to discuss how to move forward, and just to talk about it, because that will help us move forward. I want to hear from you. The numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. We have a number of guests with me in studio, Ross McLean, security and terrorism expert. Ross will be with us for the whole hour, and we will be joined with other people. Hi, Ross. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Good to be with you here, Libby. And I think this is going to be a really good hour because of the other guests you have here, because there's a few different angles to this that I think everybody wants to learn about. Okay. Well, um, you know, it's um, almost 24 hours later, and we don't really know a lot. We know almost nothing about what may have motivated this. Yeah, there's there's a lot that we that we still don't know. There's a lot of theories that are coming out, uh, but wh- I think what we're actually starting to learn a little bit more 24 hours uh, later is not so much about this man who stands accused now of uh, you know 10 murders and 13 attempted murders, but we're starting to realize the enormity of what happened. It seems this one seems to be have a slow rollout for the public to get the grasp of it, and I think it's because as the event occurred. No one was sure what was going on for like an hour or so. Nobody was sure what was well, going on. Well, I know that just as it started to occur, I thought maybe it was a really bad traffic accident. You know, we had uh, that horrible crash in Humboldt, Saskatchewan just recently. Yes. I, I thought it was it was a, a traffic crash with, with multiple um, fatalities. We just didn't know. I, I was parking my car in midtown Toronto, getting ready to get out of it, listening to a radio report saying, oh, there seems to be a... An accident up at uh, Young and Finch. Uh, several people are injured. Um, okay, 
Yeah, they're not going to go anywhere for that. Then I start to hear that, uh, well, it was a van that apparently went up on the sidewalk and hit the people. I'm like, okay. I'm still not jumping to terrorism myself. But then I hear, oh, it was a rental van, apparently, and it's left the scene. Now, I, I got in my, I started driving right away up that way, listening to it unfolding and trying to determine where it happened. Young and Finch, Young and Shepard, those are big distances apart yeah. as we're hearing it. And it just was not clear uh, what was going on. Uh, yeah, and it's it's still not clear what's going on. Uh, you know, uh, the authorities so far have ruled out uh, national security implications of this, uh, which I take to mean that it's probably not a terrorist incident. Is that how you take it? Well, there you get into the definition of terrorist, right? Well, how do you how do you define it legally? Uh, police have to be very careful. They can't say unless they can prove motivation is political, religious, or ideological. If they can't prove that, you won't even hear those words come out of the police's mouth because they're obligated. If they say that, they could jeopardize their case if they can't prove it. So the police won't say that. Uh, the uh, I thought actually this is one of the better responses I heard from the federal government and Ralph Goodall. He was fairly conclusive about we don't have any indications. There seems to be no national security risk. And those, so I thought that was a pretty good communication uh, from that. And what that tells me is it's an isolated, uh, homegrown, for lack of a better word. We have all these labels that don't quite yeah. fit. They don't quite fit, but it's a local terror incident. Terror, as in it's terrorizing, and a- it was absolutely. And me. as you said in your opening, it's a terror tactic. It's definitely a terror tactic. Um, uh, of course, uh, the important thing to concentrate right now are on the victims and their families. Uh, we have the identity of one uh, woman uh, who was killed in the attack, Anne-Marie D'Amico. Uh, I just saw a notice, actually, from Tennis Canada saying uh, that she had worked at the Rogers Cup since the age of 12, presumably as a volunteer, was always smiling and had the biggest heart. So I think it's important to uh, remember the victim. Uh, Some of the talk is that uh, he had an issue with women, perhaps, uh, but it's we don't know yet who the other victims are. Now, of course, one of the first things that happens when you have mass casualties like that, uh, first responders, and uh, we have paramedic Mike Merriman on the line with us. Hello, Mike. Thanks for joining us. Good afternoon, Libby. Thanks for having me. Well, uh, first of all, I'm assuming when you get a call like this, uh, you also don't know exactly what's happened and, and the training kicks in, right? Exactly. Exactly. Um, I'm. It, uh, the paramedics probably would have, would have been aware by the sound of the call details that it potentially was a mass casualty incident, as you mentioned. But yeah, the training kicks in automatically. We're all universally trained as uh, across the province, and in fact, across Ontario, as uh, first ambulance in automatically becomes a triage officers and uh, and an MCI. Mm-hmm. You sound uh, pretty shaky there. Are you okay? Yeah, I'm. I'm okay. Um, I just sort of, uh, you know, I know what these crews are going through right now, and paramedics are a family, and uh, you know, what affects one of them affects all of us. And I, I have a, I have a, a good idea of what the paramedics are going through right now. So, um, how many 
how many uh, units, how many paramedics responded to the scene over how long a period of time? Um, I'm not sure on the exact uh, amount of ambulances responded. There was at least uh, probably about uh, a good dozen from Toronto, also uh, York Regional Paramedic Services, sent in about six units to help us out. Mm-hmm. And uh, they would have. It would have been the paramedics, um, uh, for instance, who uh, who covered the the bodies of those who passed away. Correct. Yes. It, yes, it would have been. Uh, so uh, I mean, I, I'm sure that uh, that th- there were some people who had never encountered a scene like that. Uh, I don't think. Uh, I think, uh, as it's been mentioned, it's unprecedented for the police and for uh, paramedic services. I don't think uh, I've been on twenty-seven years, and uh, I don't think any of my colleagues have had a magnitude, a uh, call of this magnitude in Toronto. Mike, Mike Ross McLean here. I, I used to be a copper. Hi, in, I used to be a copper in Toronto. You know, I, I saw some comments from some people about, you know, man, it was, you know, the bodies were left lying in the streets and covered. Like, wh- like, why would that be? Now, you you correct me if I'm wrong. I, I'm suggesting it's because you guys were there to triage like a mass unit, and yeah. you had to decide which people you could save and which ones you could not save, and everybody's resources were to those who could be saved. Is would that be correct? That's exactly correct. That's a fair statement, Ross. Uh, again, the first paramedic crew in would have be automatically became the triage officers, and their job is not necessarily even to treat anybody. It's to again triage and find out which patients are which patient are uh, are vi- which patients are viable and which patients aren't. And uh, you know, pretty tough go. I don't wish on any of my colleagues. Uh, um, for lack of better words, and I don't mean to sound cold, but basically, you know, you have to step over some of the bodies and move on to the next person who may be able to be saved. Can I ask you something, Mike? This, because mm-hmm. I think this is important. Of all these paramedics that responded, you've got 27 years on. There's probably a chance that there might have been some uh, real green rookies that were in there too, and and they're seeing this sort of thing. What sort of setup do you guys have to deal with that sort of uh, uh, trauma afterwards? Uh, we do have a, uh, a peer resource or a peer response team that's, uh, who are well-trained. Um, they showed up at Sunnybrook Hospital to uh, debrief um, the paramedics, as well as we have a staff psychologist who, uh, Leslie Langdon is her name, and uh, she came in, actually came in uh, from uh, Kingston because she uh, was dealing with some family issues out there, and she came in from Kingston to Sunnybrook Hospital to offer services, which I thank her for. Um, how long would it have been from the time that uh, that paramedics arrived on the scene till the time that the patients were taken to Sunnybrook? Um, that's difficult to say, Libby. Um, it depends on, again, the determination of the triage officer who's designated, you know, the first crew in again who become the triage officer as to the severity of the patient. Uh, we have sometimes it's called load and go, so it's uh, we package the patient very quickly and get them down to the trauma center as quick as possible. So it's a, it's difficult to say. Um, again, based on the injuries, we have what's called a golden hour. Um, when it's a severe trauma, within that golden hour, um, you go beyond that hour, and their chances of survival decrease exponentially. 
So it's it's kind of difficult to say. It just depends on the severity of the injuries to, so that, to each individual patient. It, is it up to the paramedics to try to stabilize the patient first, or uh, just get them off to the trauma center? I would uh, well, it depends. Again, it depends. Do we stabilize on scene, or do we stabilize? Do our best to stabilize en route in on our way down to uh, the trauma center. Mm-hmm. You, you know something, Mike. You, you said you've been on for twenty-seven years. Let me let me ask you a question. I'm going to guess once again. Correct me if I'm wrong. When you started for the first fifteen or twenty years of your career, you didn't do any mass casualty training, probably to any degree. But I would bet that it's a staple of training right now for every uh, paramedic going forward. Absolutely, absolutely. That would be that's again fair to say, Ross. You know, I, I also saw. Uh, I noticed a York Region ambulance there. I saw from the overhead shots. To me. And uh, I'm a guy who will be critical if it deserves to be critical uh, on these issues. I saw, and I was a former cop, so I'm speaking from the cop point of view, but I saw an absolutely stellar response uh, from everybody at the time and how quickly everybody got there. We'd rather not be dealing with it, but what's your opinion of how it worked between all of the different agencies? Um, From everything, again, I wasn't on the scene, but from everything I'm hearing from my colleagues, uh, with respect to the paramedics, medically, they took charge of the scene and executed their duties flawlessly, and also with the support of uh, police and fire. And I can't speak highly enough about your uh, former colleagues there, Ross. Um, they, you know, as you well know, they will set up roadblocks for us. They will give us escorts down to the trauma center, and they're, you know, anything we need to help try to save well, a life. They're, why you know, they're, would you the have needed there for us? Why would you have needed a, a police escort? Well, I'm not sure if they actually had police escorts. Uh, they, on this. You know what? I, I was on scene. One case, but they close. What they will do is they they will block intersections for us so that we don't even have to. Because technically, we have to come by even over lights and sirens. We have to stop at a red light, make sure the way is clear, and police will actually block the intersections so we can just fly right through. Uh, yeah, I, I saw, uh, Mike, I was down there at the scene, and I saw several emergency runs that took place. And let me, let me tell you where that helps. Uh, as he said, they get out in front, the police uh, get out in front, all the guys doing point duty and the girls doing point duty, see the police car coming, see the ambulance. They make sure it's clear for the police car to go through, which makes sure it's clear for the ambulance to go through. And they just continue to part the sea, if you will. So the ambulance driver can drive with a more steady, solid, fast pace without having to worry about jamming on the brakes or something happening. So I, I think it's a, it's a real big aid. You'd be surprised that the when you hear emergency run when you're on the police department, uh, things happen things happen yeah and it's, yeah a lot of mm-hmm. people i mean i know a lot of times even myself it, it can take a while till you figure out as a driver where is this coming from Correct. where can i move to so it's it's tricky i'm sure uh <clears throat> and seconds me. and seconds do count seconds so, absolutely yeah. do count um so uh the triage officers how long would they have uh, remained at the scene they're they, right till the very end. They're the first ones on scene and they're the last ones to leave. So it's, uh, it's uh, a, a difficult gig, to say the least. 
You know, I, I just want to say myself, I mean, I'm not being nice because Mike was nice to the police officers and all that, but the last number of times when I've been at scenes where there's paramedics there, I am very impressed with the level of knowledge and professionalism that they have. And I can tell when they're going through all their diagnostic tests. I mean, it's, I, I, it's a world apart from the way that it used to be so many years ago, where it was really sort of first aid, sort of get in and move along. The, the skill set here is pretty phenomenal. And, you know, I, it might be nice, Mike, if you get the chance, ask your bosses to put out some kind of, I don't know, report on about what was saved and what was done and what was good and what training is very, very worthwhile that made a difference here. Because I, I can just imagine what it must have been like. I, I heard about, I talked to some witnesses who went up and they saw civilians running up trying to do CPR and yeah. trying to help and do everything they could. And it's, you know, that's without the training that these people have. Yeah. Is that, is that a good idea for uh, civilians to do CPR? Absolutely. Absolutely. And in fact, it's highly uh, promoted by our, our and endorsed by our profession. And, you know, I think we all owe a debt of gratitude to the citizens who step forward and, as was mentioned earlier, put themselves in harm's way to, you know, do what they could to aid the uh, dying and injured, i.e. with uh, uh, CPR. Um, you know, if I can, Libby, I'd like to, you know, I think possibly the mayor should actually maybe set up a uh, a hotline for these individuals to call into if they may need some help and offer up the city I, resources. I believe there is one. There okay. is a hotline. I wasn't aware. Okay, I wasn't aware of that, and that's great because, um, you know, as tough as it is for paramedics, at least we have the at least we have the resources, which many of these citizens that step forward may not have. Okay, um, paramedic Mike Merriman, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for your time, Libby, and thank you, Ross. And uh, thanks to all the first responders. An amazing job yesterday, and and we're all very grateful. Thanks again, Libby. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, uh, we have to take a quick uh, break. I'm going to take one call before the break. We've got Martin in Brampton. Hi, Martin. Are you, are you there, Martin? Yes, can you hear me? Just barely, so uh, we'll try to make it quick, okay? Okay, can you hear me now? Uh, yeah. I want to know what, how are we going to solve this problem? I come from Brampton, and there's farmer's markets. There's a farmer's market down in Brampton every Saturday, and there's farmer's markets around the country every Saturday. Do we have to set up roadblocks to protect the people going to farmer's markets now for some crackpot that may think that he wants to do whatever he's got to do? Okay, thanks, Martin. I'm going to let Ross respond. And the answer, unfortunately, is yes, as we did here for the Christmas markets. They had to put bullards around. And you have to consider that now. You have to. And and as I've said before, we're going to have to learn to start living more like Israelis do. <laughs> you have to keep your eyes open, packages on a bus. I mean, how many calls have people seen on their social media or heard about the last little while about suspicious packages being found? People are being aware. They're looking for them now. And unfortunately, that's where we are. I mean, so I'm sorry to say that, caller. I appreciate how wonderful these farmers' markets are we have. And it's terrible that you have to think about that, but that's where we are. Okay, we have to take a quick break. And when we return on the other side of the break, we'll be talking to Phil Gursky, who is the president and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consultants and a former strategic analyst at CSIS. Also, before we go to break, the numbers 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And uh, we'll be right back. 
Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back to this special edition of Fight Back, where we are talking about yesterday's horrific van attack. Uh, We are trying to figure out how it was handled, what we can learn, and how to move forward. I'm here with Ross McLean, and let's bring in Phil Gursky, who is the president and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consultants and a former strategic analyst at CSIS. Hello, Phil. Welcome. Hi, Libby. Thanks for having me on the program. Thank you for coming on the program. Uh, Now, it did not take very long uh, for Ralph Goodale and others to say that they did not think uh, that there's a threat to national security and all of this. How would they have made that determination? You know, that's a good question. And the first time that I heard where they were, they had ruled it out, at least at the time being, was early evening, so around 8 p.m., um, which suggests to me that they had a good six and a half, seven hours to uh, look at the individual they had in custody and to determine based on what they could find out that there is no obvious link to terrorism. And you, and you, you just have to understand that in Canada, terrorism is a very specific offense under the criminal code. And it has to be a, an act of violence that's perpetrated for ideological, political, or religious reasons. So what that shows to me is that they're able to determine that, that based on what they knew at the time, there is no obvious link to those motivations. So that may change. I, I don't think it will, personally, based on what I've learned since that time. But I think it was the right call at the right time. Uh, so would you say they would have uh, checked uh, whatever Facebook posts he had? Uh, what else would they have done in that period of time? Well, certainly, Olivia, we've learned through Mark Zuckerberg's uh, testimony before Congress and all the controversies surrounding Facebook is that everything you post online is open, right? And you, don't, you don't need a warrant to look at that stuff. If you put it online and anyone can see it, I would be also think that maybe in this case they got an emergency warrant to look at things that you, that you need a warrant for in Canada. So like phone records, like um, you know cell phone, like his email. And if they got that warrant and they're able to you know scroll through at least the last couple of days, they may have found information that suggests that a it wasn't terrorism, uh, or b they they didn't find anything at all which suggests it wasn't terrorism as well. So it's a bit of a false positive or a false negative in this sense. But they certainly came out pretty quickly with it, so I guess they were confident that, at least at least for now, that, in fact, this is not a matter of national security or terrorism. Well, and, and Ross, um, as uh, we both noted, the, the, the thing that really would raise red flags, it's a rented van and it's a vehicular attack of the type that has been used by terrorists. Yeah, there's an interesting point here, Phil. Uh, that Ross McLean, I was a cop a long time ago and a crime analyst, and I do security. And I've covered terror before. So, right. que- so question for you on this. It's and, and you're right. It's a very specific thing, a crime of terrorism. So it's something that one can rule out somewhat easily uh, if, if there's no evidence to it. But where are we going now with the fact that we're seeing a lot of attacks that are taking place that don't rise to the level of being political, religious, or ideological, but nonetheless, it's people who are exacting mass crimes in mosques. Um, out in Calgary, there was the person who ran several people over uh, once again in this one here. What role is the federal government ceases playing in, in working on that, or is that falling between the cracks? Yeah, it's a great question, Ron. I, I mean, it's something that, because um, definitely uh, when I was at the service, and I retired three years ago, the, the bulk of the investigations from a national security perspective were carried out against Islamic extremism, and I can justify that, no problem, because that's what the threat was. Um, start to look at the far right. So, you know, right-wing extremism, which, is, which had a huge problem in the States as well, but not as many resources. 
if this is really just vehicular homicide, if this is somebody who's, who did this merely to kill people, and it's, if there's no motivation that, that's behind it, it becomes a criminal issue and not an intelligence issue. So it's not the kind of thing that CSIS would be looking at. It would become a law enforcement. So the Toronto Police Services or the RCMP, so far it's been Toronto Police Services. They're the force of jurisdiction in North Toronto. And so the kind of thing that they're looking at, and I just want to tell, tell your listeners, Libby, that, you know, an attack of this nature is, is all but a, a impossible to stop. If someone decides to wake up one morning, rent a van, and run into a crowd, I mean, you tell me who's going to stop that. If there's no prior warning, if they're not being investigated for other reasons, if there's no indication through a, a social media posting or, you know, he tells his best friend he's had enough and he's going to go in a blaze of glory, um, you can't stop it. I'm sorry, there's, there's no regime on the planet that's going to stop it, aside from having every Canadian monitor 24-7. That's the scary part of it, is it's true. Um, there's, but, there's... But, but here's here's a point that brings up this. Phil mentions this. You know, like you said, it's not a national security sort of terrorism problem, so therefore it's a law enforcement problem. But law enforcement does not have the resources that CSIS has and, and the federal agencies have. So, And there's the municipalities, there's different cities. How are we going to... That's what I'm saying. This sort of falls between the cracks. Like, if this guy was posting online some stuff that doesn't amount to terrorism because it's not for ISIS, but he says, you know, theoretically, as we're hearing, that he hates women, he's going to go out and do something, and I'm going to, uh, you watch me what I do to women tomorrow. I mean, the police aren't going to be able to pick that up in advance, but that might be something. Is that is is that what uh, he posted? We, we have heard, and of course, unconfirmed, that he had issues with women, but I did not hear that he said he was going to do something. No, I'm saying we don't know that yet, because we're looking at it. So my question is, but the Toronto police can't look at that. They're not going to be, they need a warrant to do that. Whereas sometimes uh, CSIS and the Five Ives, I mean, you guys will come across information... Uh, to feed down, but would that is that? It? But that's not an emphasis, is what I'm hearing. Yeah, and, and, and furthermore to this, I mean, I mean, so I worked on radicalization at CSIS for 15 years, and one thing I learned uh, quite quite categorically is that nobody self radicalizes. I.e., there's always someone that notices something: a parent, a friend, uh, a religious leader, a classmate, a workmate, whatever. There are always signs, and I, I wrote a whole uh, my first book is all about the signs of radicalization. So if, in fact, this guy was giving off signs of whatever, like you said, it could be he hated women, he wanted to get back to them, somebody probably noticed something, something he posted online. So my, my retort to you is that it's not necessarily a thesis or RCMP responsibility. First of all, it's a, a Facebook responsibility, because that stuff should not be put online. Secondly, the guy has got to have friends or followers, whether it's on Twitter or on Facebook. And so if you posted that and I was following you on Twitter, my first call was the Toronto Police say, this is what I just read online. This guy, he snapped. He's lost it, and he's going to do something. So I think there's, a, there's an obligation on the public when they come across this information to do something with it, not ignore it, not reject it as being meaningless, not, oh, I don't want to get in trouble, I don't want to have this guy give this guy a hard time. These are signs, and they have to be, have, is, something has to be done. That, is that time. realistic? Are we going to get, getting to a place where we're all kind of uh, snooping on each other? No, I wouldn't call it snooping, but Libby, I mean, you know, I don't know if you have a family, but I mean, if your daughter was suicidal, would you just turn a blind eye and do nothing about it? No, you'd get her help kind of thing, right? So if my best friend is posting stuff that he hates women, he can't get a date, he can't, you know, he, he can't get laid and he wants to kill somebody, well, I'm not going to say, well, he's just having a bad day. I'm going to say, well, this is, you know, look like, what's, why did he post this? What's going on? And I think, personally, maybe it's because I worked the thesis. I have an obligation to tell somebody. Well, you know what's interesting, Phil, you know what's interesting about that? Uh, We don't want to go too far astream here, but the Parkland shooting in the school. 
Everybody yeah. knew that that kid was trouble. The police knew him. They went there. There was postings. It was coming. And we've seen quite a few where people have actually posted prior to attacks. You're, you're, you're right. And the, but the problem then becomes, what if you can't actually, what if the postings are, are worrisome, but they're not enough to lay a charge? Or they're not enough to seize a well, weapon? Well, exactly. You know what I mean? Or they're not enough to commit somebody for help? I mean, that, that's where we, I think we have a problem. And I don't have an answer to that question. I'm, I'm sorry. It, it challenges me as well. Yeah, I think that's the, the the crack that I think is developing in the way we're protecting society, though. I think that's that's where the crack comes in. Well, and if that's the case, and I don't disagree with you, I think that we as a society, and this is going to sound awful, and I don't attend any disrespect to the people who were killed or injured yesterday, but as a society, we have to simply accept the fact that bad things happen. And we'll do our best to stop them, but even the best um, efforts of thesis and RTMP and law enforcement and psychiatrists and, 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 and healthcare workers and parents and friends, even sometimes you can be engage in Herculean efforts to stop it, and it still happens. And I think that you know bad things happen all the time. Uh, we try to stop most of them. We don't, and we have to accept that. I think uh, it may sound crass, but I think that's, that's the way life is. Is there a danger? I mean, obviously, uh, he, assuming that there is no ideological content to this, assuming, he copycatted uh, a terrorist attack. Is there now a danger of, of more of that kind of thing, Phil? I think it's a real possibility. I think you're absolutely right. So certainly we've seen a whole spate of attacks, largely in Western Europe, although Evanston was a case last fall after the St. Peter's Eskimos game. We saw an incident in, 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 in Montreal in 2014. Um, so that information is out there. And we know that terrorist groups have, have urged there's their followers, their supporters to just get in a car and run over the enemy kind of thing. So I think that the um, you can't take the information off the Internet. It's there. Yeah, I mean, if you take it off, it'll simply reappear somewhere else. So I think that there is a very real possibility of copycats. In the same way we see copycats in other ways, right? Whether it's bombings or knifings or whatever, some people don't have a lot of imagination. And they're simply going to do, hey, he did that. I can do that, too. And I'm going gonna, and I'm gonna to follow through. So I, I would be I, I would be wary of that, the fact that we may, in fact, see... Uh, similar attacks. I hope not, but you can never say never in this regard. Well, you know, you know, of interest in that, and I don't have enough details. There's been a lot of publication bans on it. The the mosque shooting, uh, you know, that man who I believe had mental issues, and there's some other things that played into that. But that was not uh, ruled as being terrorism. But yet we're understanding that he was watching all sorts of terrorist uh, attacks and videos uh, online. Is my understanding. Yeah. Yeah, that's a tough one. I know that when the attack took place in January of last year, I, I wrote extensively on it. I said, based on what I know now, I'm pretty sure it was probably a hate crime because the group was identified. He clearly, he clearly targeted Muslims at prayer. I mean, that indicates to me there's some level of hate. Whether that was terrorism, I wasn't sure. But now that a lot of the information has come out, you've seen the interview he's not given to police. You're learning more about his social media postings. You're learning more about the people he followed online. I, I'm more comfortable now saying that you could have laid terrorism charges in that case. But then we, the other thing we have to bear in mind is that in this country, the Crown only lays charges it's going to get convictions on, right? The Crown hates to lose. I've talked to Crown prosecutors. They hate to lose. So if I can get six, six counts of first-degree murder versus six counts of terrorism, and I have a better chance of getting uh, a conviction on, on murder, I'm going to go with murder. The terrorism charges aren't, aren't nearly as important because I want to send this guy away for a long time. Whether it's for murder or terrorism, it's, it's irrespective. We want to, we want to put them away, and that's 
and murder is easier to prove than terrorism. Um, we're just learning, we have breaking news. Uh, CTV News has learned that Alec Manassian was a member of the Canadian Armed Forces for two months in late 2017, that's very recently last year, and he requested to be released after 16 days of recruit training. So uh, there's an interesting wrinkle if he was in the armed forces for two months uh, you would have thought that they might have noticed something if or, or that or he, he was just such a bad recruit that you know he realized he wasn't going anywhere and 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 I, i've never been in the armed forces libby but what do you actually learn in two months i don't know aside from polishing your boots do you get any weapons training do you get any you know i, I have no idea no but well, i would, I would say think, you think they would notice if 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 this a mental health issue you think they would have noticed in two months of training that or, something was or, amiss or was he really good at hiding it right we know he was socially awkward we, we've heard that from his fellow students at seneca college we have allegations that he may have suffered from asperger's syndrome And I don't know if you've ever met anybody with Asperger's, but there's a certain baseline of behavior that becomes normal. So they say, oh, he's just a little bit off, right? So, and, and, and the armed forces, you know, they're not all psychiatrists. So I think they'd be really careful with the diagnosis thing here. But you're absolutely right, Libby. I think that if something had been obvious, somebody should have said something. That's my point. And when I lecture on radicalization to police forces across Canada, around the world, and communities, I say, look, you guys, there are signs. There are always, always signs, and, and, and the obligation you have is what are you going to do with those signs? You can ignore them, and if something blows up tomorrow, well, you're going to wear it. You're going to feel bad about it. So I'm not saying it's easy to report this stuff. It's not. But somebody has, at some point has to do something. Otherwise, we're going, to, we're going to be dealing with this until the end of time. Okay. Phil Gursky, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure, Libby. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Uh, let's take a call from Giovanni in Brampton. Hi, Giovanni. Uh, yes, uh, good afternoon, and thank you for taking my call. Uh, what's happening in Toronto, I think, is unbelievable. Now, uh, I thank the constable of the traffic that he did a, a traffic job, and I could see that he had a good trainer. Now, is, uh, uh, training the police is different from different uh, level, or they're all the same? This is my question to your guest, please. It's, it's, it's interesting. We were just uh, talking about that uh, before the show, and Ross was saying that people in traffic services get really great training. Well, they do because they work on their own, so they do a lot of things on their own. I'm not sure how broad the question was from uh, Giovanni there, but in answer to your question, there's the Ontario Police College, which everybody has to get their, uh, their degree from in order to work for a police department. But Toronto has its own police college, the Toronto Police College. The OPP have their own college, the, the Ontario Police uh, College for it. And as you go through, you get training. You get basic training. Uh, on how to use your weapon and how to do things. But there are different levels that you can get trained at. Like, for instance, I got one training on it was retaining your weapon training, which was over and above the standard shooting training. And it was some of the best training I ever got because it's so you don't lose your weapon and you deal with it. So, yeah, there are different levels. It's hard to get everybody trained. When you got 5,000 people and you have to take them out of uh, service for days to go get training. It's about all the common sense, I believe. And... Uh I wish that they could do a better job, uh, not because I'm uh, saying something or I'm a whistleblower or anything or a complainer, but um, I think that uh, the constable there, he did a perfect job by seeing on the video, and I thank you for that, and I'm very sorry for all those people lost their life. Thank uh, you. As we all are. Thanks, Giovanni, for that. Giovanni, citizen yeah. number one, and I say he has good judgment. Yep.
Okay, uh, we have to take another break. We will be back to take more of your calls and also to talk to psychologist Dr. Oren Amate. We'll be right back. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We are talking about yesterday's horrific van attack. We're calling it a van attack. Uh, I'm going to bring in Dr. Oren Amatai, who is a registered psychologist. And uh, just uh, Ross made an interesting point in the break that in in some of these attacks in the U.S., uh, it turned out that the perpetrator had some history with the armed forces. And now it's looking like uh, uh, the accused Alec Manassian also was in the armed armed forces for a very short period of time. Uh, Dr. Oren Amate, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Libby. Uh, so one of the things that we are hearing um, about this guy is uh, that he had issues with women, trouble with women. Right, I'm hearing that, and he was part of this group, um, or connecting to them, uh, involuntary um, involuntary uh, celibacy, or in, I think it's incel, incel? Okay. Um, so, All new words for us to learn, right, Doctor? Yes, I'm losing track of them. Um, I wasn't even aware of it until the story that there was this organization. But it seems like, A, um, uh, he's... Let's, let's backtrack oh, a little sure. bit. I think our listeners haven't heard of it either. So there is this is an actual organization of it, involuntary celibates? Yeah, it might be more of a Reddit group, which, you know, to me is still an organization because people feel a connectedness to, you know, like-minded people. So uh, it may just be, like I said, Reddit. They may not meet in person, but they are, uh, you know, they, they feel there's a kinship among them. Mm-hmm. So when you have something like that where, you know, I guess they're, they're all kind of feeding into each other's uh, impotent rage, uh, it's misdirected because instead of saying, well, you know, what can I do about myself to improve the situation, it's much easier to say women are evil or all women are untrustworthy or the society is against me. And when you build that up, depending on your personality, depending on your history and perhaps mental health issues, it's not that much of a stretch to go from there to something, you know, more violent. Although, you know, let's, let's be clear, yesterday's attack is nothing uh, normal. It's completely out of the norm, as I'm sure Ross has been saying. It's, you know, it's not a typical occurrence. But still, when people feel that the world is against them or the world owes them something and it's not doing what they think, they can lash out in drastic ways. Um. Whenever we uh, see a situation like this, one of the first things all kinds of people are saying, well, it's, it, uh, it's mental health issues. Um, how do you actually determine that? Yeah, I get concerned when people say that because that just feeds into the stigmatization of uh, mental illness or mental health issues because statistically we know most people with such issues are more likely to harm themselves than others. It's just these stories are the ones that make you know the media so how do you assess that? Well, first you look at their history. You see whether they do have a history of um, psychiatric or psychological care. You see if there's, there were diagnoses assigned to them. And if they are uh, incarcerated, that gives you the opportunity to assess them there as well uh, to see what their mental state was at the time. In many of these cases, it's not mental illness. It's a bad personality. There's a lot of narcissism involved. And so when someone suffers what we call the narcissistic insult, 
that's where they just feel that they've been slighted and where most people would think it's a benign or neutral or, you know, a trivial statement. To them, it's the worst thing in the world, whether it's a statement or action. And so then that leads to narcissistic rage and they can lash out in a variety of ways. So for someone with a personality disorder, to me, that's uh, certain types like narcissism. That's not a mental health issue. That's different. It's different. That's, you and, know what? He just uh, brought out a remarkable uh, distinction here for, for me, Libby, because I, I often talk with people the difference between being criminal and being not criminally responsible, that whole yeah. thing in between there. And I say, look, anybody who commits murder, generally speaking, has got a, I'm going to say a mental problem, but maybe now we can add personality problem uh, to that that it enables this sort of thing. So that's an interesting point I think the doctor brings out. Yes, and the thing with narcissism, um, it's not... Uh, it's, it's not a necessary uh, symptom, but it's often common is this lack of empathy or lack of regard for others. And so when you don't feel uh, bad for, for hurting other people, it's very easy to do some horrific things. And whether you're a narcissist or a psychopath or a sociopath, that can be a hallmark of such issues. And I don't want to say all narcissists. There are many different subtypes, but the malignant narcissist is the one who really has no regard for the well-being of others. Uh, the other thing that I've heard, and I think we discussed it a little bit, uh, was what's the possibility if he was on some kind of medication that helped trigger this or going off a medication? Uh, is there anything to that? Statistically speaking, we're hearing that more and more of these people who commit these horrific acts have been on medication. And the question then is, is the medication causing them to do certain things? Is going off it, as you mentioned? We do know that when people go off of medication, they can have serious uh, you know, neurological reactions. So is that doing it? Or is the medication just, you know, it's just kind of further proof that the person may be suffering some type of issue that made them do this in the first place? So we don't know yet. It's, too, it, it's definitely correlational at this point. It's a very strong correlation. We just can't infer causation yet. Uh, yeah, okay. Um, let us take a call from uh, William in Toronto. Hi, William. Hi. Uh, uh, two things that I'd like to put forth. Um, first, when these things happen, I, I view it uh, uh, as uh, solving a business problem. You isolate the problem. You identify the problem, isolate and solve it. Now, so far, uh, from the guests that have been uh, speaking, uh, they have not identified the problem um, it seems at these early stages that this gentleman uh, uh, felt shunned by by women. He didn't like it at Seneca College. He had derogatory remarks when he graduated from remarks from when he graduated from there. Yeah. And I I wanted to focus. I like tried to focus on what drove this man to do, do these extreme measures. Uh, okay. With, Okay, William, thanks for your call. Uh, that's what we've uh, saying that the authorities don't yet know on on what drove him. This is this is all we we don't know any of this for sure. And uh, as Dr. Amate is pointing out, I mean, you can have all these issues and it doesn't necessarily drive you to murder. I I and you know it, it gives me pause when people are so fast to say. It's mental illness, and it's it's uh, it, sometimes it almost sounds like they don't want to make people responsible. Doctor Amate, is is that is that something? 
Yeah, I don't know if they're not if they don't want to make people responsible or if they're just desperately se- uh, searching for some answer and they can't fathom how somebody who's quote unquote not crazy could do something like that. And Ross was referring to that earlier. And um, you know, I think people have to recognize that we all have the capacity for doing evil acts if the right circumstances kind of coalesce. And, you know, some people are, you know, higher up on the spectrum, and it's much easier for them to do that. Uh, and, you know, the other thing I want to add to this, again, it's all speculative at this point, but I did hear that he may have um, autism, high-functioning autism, or Asperger's, uh, as we used to call it, and that he was making almost an homage to the other gentleman in the States who had, um, I think he also drove the van, and he had Asperger's. I only heard that just in a couple of hours ago, and I'm not sure if you've been talking about that angle. Uh, Well, we haven't been talking about it on air, but we've heard that, but uh, uh, not confirmed, but yeah, that's what we've heard. Okay, and the only reason I mentioned... Oh, sorry. The, the, uh, you know, reports, talking to people who've known him and said he was very socially awkward, uh, so who knows whether there was an actual diagnosis. Okay, and the only reason I brought that up was not to feel the fire, but just, you know, these kinds of uh, maybe factoids or rumors are going to be coming out and people are just going to be just desperately grabbing onto this one or that one because we always, as part of the human condition, we try to make sense of the nonsensical and we have to be careful not to rush into that. Be more prudent, get more facts and have the kind of discussions you're having today with, you know, people who know more about this so that we don't uh, start stigmatizing certain peoples or conditions. Uh- Dr. Amate, uh, I want to turn to to people who witness this or people who are disturbed about this. What should they do to help them move forward? What's really important is that they if they find somebody, whether professional or personal, with whom they can speak that they trust and they feel safe with, so that they can give an accurate narration of what happened because we know with post-traumatic stress disorder it's not necessarily the incident itself um, 25, 40, up to 60%, depending on the study you look at, uh, of people experiencing a trauma will go on to experience PTSD, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. But that means not everybody will. And one of the common issues or fa- uh, factors is that the person distorts the experience uh, and they amplify certain parts. The biggest thing they amplify is their sense of helplessness uh, to do anything. Um, and they, the other part is that they blame themselves somehow. I should have done this. I, you know, why didn't I do that? And so it's important to speak to somebody so that they don't distort the experience, which will increase their chances of, you know, developing PTSD. You know, Doc Amate, you're so good with your advice on giving this. Can I just take that one a little bit further, Libby? What about the people? Because we haven't heard the names of all these people yet. People are going to be finding out who who the victims are. What, what can you say about the necessity for people to go through the process of grieving in order to help get over this too? And how are they, how are they going to manage this? You know, I always say there's no one right way to grieve. Everyone has their own way, but there are many wrong ways to help people grieve. So, you know, people are going to, once people find out, uh, you know, about loved ones or friends, people they knew, um, were, you know, were victims, uh, they need to be supported in whatever way they need to move forward. So I always tell people, the only thing you can really say in these situations is, I'm here for you. 
tell me what you need, and I'm going to be there. And that's it, because so many people want to impose their own way. For some people, it's go back to work right away. For others, it's, you know, do a ritual. For some people, it's mourn with others. And you can't impose that on the person. So I think it's very important, Ross, that you brought that up, that um, many people, whether they witnessed it or whether they, um, you know, know the people or just people grieving the loss of innocence, grieving, you know, their, their safety. Uh, there's going to be a lot of different um, people going through so many of these negative experiences, and we just have to be there, be supportive, and make sure that people don't do self-destructive things. If someone's doing something like, I'm going to drink my, uh, you know, my grief away, that's something that we can kind of intervene and say, well, you know, maybe there's other ways of doing it. Uh, I wanted to... Um we have uh, some phone numbers for distress centers. Uh, it's kind of hard to give them uh, over the air. Uh, there's the Toronto Distress Center at 416-408-4357 and uh, the Gerstein Center at 416-929-5200. Uh, we will post those on our website and uh, people should uh, avail themselves of that help if they need it. Uh, we're basically out of time. Uh, Dr. Orrin Amate, thank you so much for that. Thank you, and thank you for having this very important discussion, especially with an expert like Ross on to really help kind of clarify things and you know, help navigate through it. Okay, thank you very much. And uh, Ross, thank you. Uh, we have uh, about a minute left, less than a minute. What would you like to leave us with? I'm going to leave us with this. I, we, we started off the program talking about how this unfolded. And I think that we're going to see more of an unfolding of this. As Dr. Amate pointed out, there's going to be a ripple effect here to all of the hundreds of people that are going to know these people. We talked about the one victim here at the start. So there's a police presser coming up at 3 o'clock. I think this is going to continue to unfold and cause grief. And, I, you know, back to our paramedic, I think we're going to have to triage this whole thing a little bit and try and deal with all these different problems. We've got criminal, spy stuff psychology stuff, grief, loss of innocence. It's, it's going to still unfold, Libby. Yep, it's going to still unfold. Uh, sorry if we couldn't get to your calls today. Uh, Free for All Friday is coming up, but I suspect we'll be talking about this again before then. And uh, thanks to Ross McLean. That's all the time we have for Fight Back for today. And we now break for traffic and news. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.